Welcome to Globally Speaking, sponsored by Moravia and Nimsy Insights. Are you ready to dive into the most critical issues impacting language localization today? Globally Speaking is an independent program designed to educate, inform, and challenge everyone who's engaged in global communications. Your hosts for Globally Speaking are Renato Beninato and Michael Stevens. Learn more by visiting our website at www.globallyspeakingradio.com. And now, here are Renato and Michael. I'm Michael Stevens, and today on Globally Speaking, Renato and I have a discussion continuing our look at money and how money impacts the localization industry. Today, we're asking the question, how do you get paid? And you'll find in this interview that we talk to an expert who is able to really give a blueprint for people, especially small business owners, who are trying to find the most efficient way to get translators and the people who work for them paid. I'm sure you will find it informative. So we'll let our guest introduce herself. Hi, everybody. I'm Evelyn demuth Baudet, And to tell you a little bit about my background, I'm a French to English translator and I work for direct and agency clients. And I've also been an independent project manager for over 20 years in the industry. And I work for direct clients around the world. I also frequently write and present on issues that are related to translation and the business of translation. And I also am a co-host of the Speaking of Translation podcast. And last year, I was really excited that my first book came out, and it's called Maintaining Your Second Language. It's targeted to translators, interpreters, and other language professionals. And you can find it on Amazon and also on iBooks. I strongly recommend both the podcast and the book. If you don't have that, I think it's the second best book in the whole industry. (laughs) Thank you, Renato. <laughs> we won't even talk about. We won't, the first. We're not going to talk about the first. We don't the first. Talk about the show. <laughs> we let our guests promote themselves. So this is great, and a, a lot of your work is for translators, about translators, and a big part. As much as we love language, as much as we enjoy the communities we work in, we're here to get paid. Exactly. Yeah. And you've done some research and have some thoughts on this, and I have tons of questions. Oh, great. Okay. So. Yeah. Start talking to me about your research. I will. Okay. (laughs) So from what I've seen, kind of being active, like you're saying, in actually getting paid and paying people and also my research is that the most common methods used are things like PayPal, Skrill, bank wire transfers, sometimes credit cards, not that common really, but it could be done via PayPal or kind of other vendors like that. And even within the US and Canada, checks. So which is, that is much less common in other countries, but those are some of the most common methods. And I'm here to talk to you today about why we don't want to really use those methods if we can avoid it and some alternative options to use other methods to pay internationally, you know, get money from our clients and to pay our vendors. The first one that causes a red flag that I here is a check. Mm-hmm. It's the biggest pain for a translator to receive. Mm-hmm. Even if you're in the US, you still have to like go to your bank or take a picture of it, right? So that's exactly no fun. But if you're sending it overseas and it's US and you're in Europe and now you're running into currency having to exchange with this check, right? So let's do away with that. Some of these other digital means, such as mm-hmm. the bank wires and PayPal, get around that, don't they? 
Yes, they do. But I did have a perfect question because <laughs> I have a lot of points for you on, even with that, the issues with PayPal are, for example, especially when you're dealing with trading currencies, you're buying different currencies to get paid in a different currency or to pay someone in a different currency, is that they take a fee. PayPal takes a fee per transaction. So that's one cost to you and or who's paying it. And it can vary greatly depending on what country is initiating the transaction, what country is receiving the transaction, and also how the transaction has been funded on PayPal, if it's being funded directly from someone's PayPal account, directly from their bank account, or if they're funding it with the credit card. So one thing about PayPal is you really don't know what fees you're going to incur up front for lots of different reasons. And this becomes very important because more and more, we're moving into a world where the size of content, the size of the projects gets smaller and smaller. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to do an international wire transfer from the United States, it will cost you $35. So you're making a payment for $23 and it costs you $35 to make that. It doesn't make any sense. Exactly. So there are things like that that need to be taken into consideration. And right? I think too, for exactly what you're saying, as a vendor myself and as someone who subcontracts out often in many different languages, I have either decided I can't use that vendor because they're not going to want to take the job or myself, I thought, oh, that sounds really interesting. I'd like to get in with this client, but I'm not going to take a $35 hit and get zero money paid to me. Yeah. So that's exactly what you said. Yeah. yeah. And in general, when a fee is brought into the equation on this, Mm -hmm. It's always pushed down to the translator. Exactly. Like companies so are thinking, oh, we're going to pay that fee and your whatever you charge on top of it. We're deducting that from whatever we are paying for your work. Right. And I do think that's endemic in our industry that people want to push it down. And I do have some ways of encouraging people who are making the payments that to not do that at basically no cost or no skin off their back where they can stop doing that, the translators. So that we're going to talk about some of that. But just to kind of finish on your PayPal can be a useful but bad thing is also when you have an exchange rate involved. So we have the fee, that's one thing, but then we also have the exchange rate that's offered. How much value are you going to get for the currency that you're buying with your own currency? And PayPal has very bad exchange rates. So we want to think about that too, not just the fee, which seems sometimes more obvious, that people, you can lose a lot of money in the exchange rate itself because they're not offering you very competitive exchange rates. For a while, I managed, I was responsible for vendor management for about a year. And I went to a conference for vendor managers in all industries, not only in the localization industry. Mm -hmm. I wanted to learn more about the challenges in this space. Mm -hmm. And it was a Gartner conference. And I talked to the analysts, I talked to the leader of the vendor management practice there. And I described what is a common situation in the translation and localization space. Mm -hmm. We deal with suppliers in sometimes over 100 countries. We're dealing with, I don't know, 70, 80 currencies at the same time. And volumes are relatively small and recurrent. So mm -hmm. you're working on a large localization project that is going to last for six months. You're doing it into 100 plus languages. You have like... I don't know, 600, 700 people involved that need to be paid in this process. And the payments are in the hundreds of dollars, maybe low thousands of dollars. It's mm -hmm. not like uh, Gartner and this analyst companies, they look at huge right. multinationals right. who are signing exactly. multi-million dollar Millions contracts. Right? Exactly. And when I described the situation to them, they said, hmm, <laughs> they wrote, maybe we should write a study about you because mm -hmm. they don't know any industry that has this characteristic. So... I like the fact that you're looking at this, but I don't want to hold us too much in suspense. 
tell us. Okay, okay. What yeah, is the right exactly. way to do it? <laughs> well, that's like you. I have, but just to follow up on what you're saying though quickly is that I've talked to different people who are some of the options that I'm going to talk about and they all say like, oh, that's a really interesting profile, exactly what you're saying. And I think a lot of those bigger companies who could help our industry don't even really know we exist, which we find in lots of different areas of our industry, right? When we talk to other industries. And so... So I want to tell you some of the alternative options include, the big one for me really is that I like to sell to everybody. And I think especially on the agency side, it could be very, very helpful to cut costs. And like you said, to streamline the actual process of doing the payments. Like you're saying, it's it's almost this manual process that takes a long time. It can help streamline that. And that is foreign exchange companies. And so the other thing I want to talk about is TransferWise, which I know a lot of people know about. And then also ACH, which is Automatic Clearinghouse. And it's also called the which is electronic funds transfer payments. But the big thing really that I like to push is the as foreign exchange companies. And what I mean by that, I want to give you guys some actual examples of vendors. And there's a lot of them. And I think people need to do their own due diligence. I actually have used a couple over the years and I currently use Cambridge Global Payments. They're kind of a mid-sized player in that space. And what I think is good about them is that they are open to being negotiated with where you can kind of, especially if you're saying this much is going to go through your company, we have a million payments to pay, but they're all small or whatever. Cambridge is a a mid-level player in that. So they're totally legit, but they're also going to be more open to negotiating than perhaps Western Union Foreign Exchange Services, which is another one. When you're talking about being able to negotiate with them, you're being able to negotiate the fee structure. That's what I, yes, what yes. their costs are. Okay. Yeah. And you're and not so, the, like the, the foreign exchange rates and so, some of those things, there's just set or less variability between what percentage you're going to get charged on fees. Well, I think also though, there's certain ceilings or levels at which you get discounts, but that I guess is considered a trade secret because I've tried to beat that out of my different vendors before. <laughs> like, okay, well, you know, if I batch these ones together and they won't tell you, but obviously I think the more money you're trading at once, but it might be too, it might not just be an individual trade. It could be, you might be able to negotiate that. I would think like, okay, I'm going to do individual ones, but in one day I'm going to pass $500,000 through or $10,000 through or 25 or whatever it is or 500. Okay. So sometimes in my own business, cause I'm relatively small, but I call myself freelance project manager, but many times I basically function as an agency. And sometimes I've been paying someone, you know, 300 bucks, 35 bucks, whatever. And sometimes I have paid someone a hundred thousand. So, and I know bigger agencies obviously have more flex doing that. And also, um, like Renato, you and I talked earlier about you don't want to pay someone $35. Well, I do it with this, this method and it's fine. It doesn't cost me anything on my end and, you know, no extra fees and it's not costing the translators to receive the money. So in this case, I actually do use people like, okay, I'm going to use so-and-so because she does a good job. I'm going to pay her a minimum fee of 25 whatevers and it's going to be totally doable. There's not going to be a bunch of fees involved. So, so these so. are the foreign exchange companies. You mentioned Cambridge Associates. Is that the correct Cambridge name? Cambridge Global Payments and it's CambridgeFX.com. The letters okay. like FX as an abbreviation for foreign exchange. Then I have just a couple other examples. Owen Day, I think, does it too. Owenday.com. Okay. Western Union is foreign exchange services. And there's also American Express foreign exchange payments. That's what their division is called. American Express FX payments. And there are many others. And I'm sure there are other legitimate ones, but people would have to do their due diligence to kind of figure out, okay, where are these people within that sector? And make sure that because we're, like Renato said, dealing with money and we're dealing with international things, transfers. So you want to make sure they are a legitimate company. Yeah. And of course, you need to do, you need to look at specific markets also, because there are limitations as to how 
you do business. And this is something that you need to take into consideration when choosing your vendors. I know that you have limitations to send money to Russia. Mm -hmm. You have limitations to go to Iran. I've never tried, but I think it would be virtually impossible to send money to North Korea mm -hmm. <laughs> from anywhere. But if you've also looked at this, we're talking a little bit from a US-centric perspective. But this is a problem that is widespread. We have listeners in Europe. We have listeners mm -hmm. in Asia. What have you seen going in the other direction? You being the receiving end. How are other companies in other continents and other countries handling the payment challenge? Well, what my impression is what you're saying, I think that this solution actually is not US-centric. That's what's good about it. And I think that really not that many people in our industry are using it. And so I think this solution of using these international foreign exchange companies gives you the option to, from the US, pay different vendors and vice versa from other markets, pay the other direction. Excellent. And I don't feel like it's common. And I've been kind of an evangelist for this for like, I don't know, I'd say the last, at least five years. <laughs> and I'm thinking, okay, everybody get on the bandwagon. But that hasn't happened yet. <laughs> Why would you want to use these services? So I, I did want to make a point that this is really kind of a business, you know, it's a business service. Like TransferWise, we talked about just really briefly. That's more for like anybody. It could be individuals, small businesses or whatever. But this is really a, for a business service. So you don't have to be a large business. I'm my only employee. And also people use Cambridge who are much bigger than me, you know, who are in, in the million dollars, for example. But you have to be a business. And so they do kind of an application process. So you have to be accepted. So then once you're approved, you can buy various currencies and have the money sent to various accounts worldwide. Wide. And like Renato said, but I think this affects, there's specific rules about sending to Argentina or sending to Poland, and they all have to strictly adhere to those. But those are pretty much going to apply, I think, anywhere in the international banking. But they will tell you that. But they can access a wide variety of markets. The other thing is about the fees is they really don't have, like American Express foreign exchange does have fees that I have seen. So you'd have to try to negotiate those out. But for example, Cambridge that I use, and I'm sure others don't really have fees into the price. They're already built in, but the exchange rate that you're going to get from them is so much lower than dealing with PayPal or your own bank that it's not even, there really is no fee. There's no fee that they're quoting you. So you're saving money right there in two ways, that you're avoiding the fee and you're getting a good rate. Secondly, you will know right up front by using their online interface what you are going to pay up front and what the vendor will receive. So when you do a bank wire transfer, first of all, everyone's getting gouged, right, with the wire fees. And secondly, you don't know what the vendor is going to necessarily receive, especially in our industry because they're pushing, agencies are usually pushing the risk onto the recipient, right, like we said. And so they are going to say, okay, I'm going to pay in US dollars. They're going to receive it in euros. It's not my problem what the person receives on that end, right? But in this, using a foreign exchange company, you can see right up front exactly what that person is going to receive. And I have never had anyone charged a fee on the receiving end when transferring money in this fashion. Mm, so like no hidden fees and the exchange rate is transparent. Yes. There are a lot of companies, and like Renato said, it may be beneficial to you if you're in Asia or if you're in Europe to look at somebody specifically that it meets your needs a little better, that it now, focuses on those markets. The distinction between the foreign exchange and the ACH ETF, mm -hmm. have you described that already? Because I've confused the two maybe in my head. Well, I think that gets into what my, so as, as you guys probably know, or different listeners today who are all over the world, 
In the U.S. banking system, that's really only used by bigger companies, usually to pay people directly. Like if I was a full-time employee at a you know a standard employee, not a freelance company, mm-hmm. they would normally at this day and age direct deposit money into my account for my pay, yep. and that's talking about that. But in other countries, it's much, much more common. I know, especially in the European countries, you can pay as an individual to someone and there's no fee to do that. You know, like you would just say, I'm going to pay my friend, transfer money over because I owe her 50 euros or whatever. And I think the Europeans think that the Americans, which I agree with, the the American banking system is way far behind on that. Not only the Europeans, even the Brazilians are way ahead of the... Yeah. And I don't know what the reason is. I'm not like an expert in banking, really like in the bigger banking picture. But I wonder too, because different times I've tried to set that up to pay people because I think, oh, that's so great. In the US, I'll do the ACH. I'll do the EFT. And then it's very, very expensive to set up. And I'm thinking, well, people don't use it because you're always trying to milk every dime you have out of it when it maybe would make the whole process more smooth and would save you money in the long run. But they want to charge everybody too much for what it is. is what I Yeah, I'll, I'll just give you a quick hint to answer your question because you have that doubt, but it's, it has historical reasons. The United States banking system is not really national, it's not really totally consolidated. It's driven mm. by nine boards, uh, that, right. that the Federal Reserve, and it was designed originally to keep banking at the state level and not at the national level to avoid the creation of huge conglomerates. But that part of the law was eliminated. So you have situations like Wells Fargo and Citibank and Chase, and you have corruption and things going on. But the foundation is still based on state-level laws. And that's why it's not so easy as it is in Europe, where you have a central bank in each country that dictates how the communication Thank you for explaining that, because that's, uh, and now that you say that, it seems obvious, but that's always frustrated me, like, oh my gosh, why are we so far behind? And and I think they do kind of get left behind in some of these innovations that are taking place, then the U.S. system is so... When I travel, I feel, when I'm paying things with credit cards in Europe, in in South America, in, in Asia, I feel like, I am the one coming from the third world country. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we've, we've talked a lot about the mechanics of getting translators paid or getting paid if you're a translator. Talk about the issue. You have to have money in order to work out those mechanics. So if you are a SLV or an MLV, your cash flow is important. Mm-hmm. Have you... I know you've thought about that probably in your personal business. Have you done much research around that, around payment terms around how we negotiate those gaps that seem to be in existence in our industry. Mm-hmm. I haven't really, but I think like you said, from my perspective, I can just say it, you know, from a vendor standpoint and also, well, I can also say it from a payment standpoint. Mm-hmm. And so my take on it as someone who pays others is that that's my, and I know that this doesn't always work out in reality for other businesses, but I feel like I, have a contract to pay that person. It doesn't really matter and it's not relevant to them when I get paid. And so I try to, I do keep that cash flow. You know, I mean, if maybe if it was a million bucks, I'm not gonna be able to do that, right? But then obviously I take steps to get deposits from the clients and things like that. Mm-hmm. But I think, I don't know if agencies always realize how important that is to the, especially the freelance backbone of the industry. And like you said, that's another example in our industry of kind of pushing it onto the last guy who has less yeah. say in it. Yeah, but I think too, from the vendor perspective, that sometimes too, you do have to do that. That's part of business. That's part of our industry. And you have to make your own plans on your end. If you agreed, okay, I'm going to take 45 days. I'm going to take 60 days for some of those Europeans or 90 days. Then you have to deal with that on your end because you agreed to that contract. 
I was following a discussion thread recently of a translator that was complaining that she wasn't paid for a project that she did. And she said, in 15 years in the industry, this was the first time that I didn't get paid. To be frank, this is a business that has very low levels of bad debt and and Mm -hmm. people not getting paid. You have your crooks like you have everywhere, but it's not the norm. It's not so bad as in, in, in other industries. And there are some scams that are typical and some people fall for that, but it's not the norm. It's very uncommon for you to hear of bad payers in this space. And there is even a list, I think, on LinkedIn and on Facebook where translators can go and check and even pros has some of that. They're blue mm-hmm. There's several, yeah. yeah. Sub- subscription-based ones. That, yeah. yeah, I think you're right. I think too that people as the vendor, if you're accepting, I always want to empower people because I think they feel like they're pushed down in, in this industry and others, but you have the power to say no. And if you don't like those terms, then don't take the job. <laughs> but if you, if you agree to it, then manage your own, you know, you know when the money's coming in and manage it on your own side too. Yeah. It also reinforces the importance of contracts and paying attention to those things on contracts. When I started in the industry, the very first thing the owner of the company I was working for did with me related to contracts was there were really two major things to look at, terms and subcontracting clauses. Mm-hmm. And my knowledge, I think, has progressed since then to be contract better. But it was it was a great introduction of like these are really the two essences of how we run positive businesses. And it's great to hear from your guys' experience that that's less of an issue. Yeah, typical issues in the payment landscape is that you get payment terms that are extended. So it used to be 30 days, it becomes 45 days, and then it becomes 60 days. And when you least expect, it's 90 days. I think that in Japan, the payment terms sometimes even reach six months. Oh, wow. uh, it's 180 days in some cases. Mm-hmm. But that's not the norm. And what I hear, it's actually a loyalty building technique that several small LSVs use is what you just described, Eve, is the pay early. The sooner you pay your vendors, the more loyal they are. They know that they can count on you. And if occasionally, and I've been there, and I know that many of our listeners that are business owners have been there, you pay on time for three years and then you have a bad month and you need an extension, your vendors will be very happy to give you that extension because you've made them happy for so long. Yeah, what, what a great idea of coming up with a strategic business advantage instead of saying, oh, we're quality, oh, we're fast delivery. We, we pay, pay early. for attorneys. <laughs> <laughs> it's, great. it's great. I think that's related to what this comes back to the idea where my days starting out in this industry many years ago over two decades, but I'm not that old, was that I always considered it that you were selling as well to your vendors. You're selling, why do they want to work to you? In addition to selling to your customers, if you want good vendors, you're going to sell it and you're going to follow through with what you're selling to them. I had a conversation recently and I heard that in Scandinavia, where the supply of translators is low compared to the demand, it's very hard to get translators to work for you. You really actively have to tell them why they mm-hmm. should be working for you. Yeah. And payment terms is a very good argument. Yeah. I'm glad to hear they recognize, like you said, it's just the supply and demand. But I think that's the key thing that we're saying that if you want to have good vendors, it's important to sell. You know, you're in sales and you better follow through with what you're selling to them that you're going to offer to them as a vendor. Eve, we've talked about several aspects of this business. How would you summarize this conversation? 
Yeah. So what I want to say is that I think there's a lot of different payment method opportunities out there and you really need to come up with a strategy. And to do that, you may end up using many of those or several of those that work in your strategy. But I think you need to ask yourself some questions about what is your strategy. So the questions are, who are your vendors and your customers? What are their industry norms for payment? What currencies do they prefer? What countries are they located in? Which payment service providers offer services to make payment in those specific countries? What are the typical amounts of money involved in your transactions? Many small amounts or less frequent larger sums? And which foreign currencies are you willing to pay in or are your vendors willing to accept? And then the last thing would be what we mentioned too is what payment terms do you honor upon receipt? 15 days, 30 days, 45, 90 days or other. And the answers to all of those questions will help you come up with a strategy for what payment methods that you use. This podcast was produced by Burns 360. You can subscribe to Globally Speaking on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. Thank you for listening to Globally Speaking, sponsored by Moravia and Nimsy Insights. We'd like to hear your comments, suggestions, and feedback. So until next time, please visit online at www.globallyspeakingradio.com.